Why was Britain transformed from a largely agricultural economy into the world's first industrial superpower during the 18th century? Award-winning historian and author Priya Satya says we must recognise that Britain was at war for 87 of the years between 1685 and 1815, the so-called long 18th century of British history. During this period of near-constant conflict, the state's demand for arms and military supplies affected every part of the economy and could only be satisfied by an unprecedented expansion of production. Here in the West Midlands, the gun trade proved to be critically important if Britain was going to fulfil its global ambitions, and at the heart of this booming industry stood one man, Samuel Galton Jr. of Birmingham. By far the most successful gun manufacturer in Britain, Galton faced a fundamental dilemma. He was a lifelong member of the Religious Society of Friends, the Quakers, and pacifism was, and is, a fundamental principle of Quaker faith. In 1792, after years of tolerance from his fellow Quakers, Galton was accused of betraying its ideals. How would he defend himself, and what can we learn from his defence? To answer these questions, and to explain how war spurred on the Industrial Revolution, Professor Satya talks to History West Midlands publisher Mike Gibbs. Priya, you have written, if I may say so, an absolutely enthralling book entitled Empire of Guns. And doing justice to your book in such a short space of time as we have available today is a great, great challenge. But can I put it to you that the nub of your argument is that war and the arms trade really drove the Industrial Revolution in Britain. Is that a fair summary? Yes, I think so. I don't want to argue that war did everything, but that in a very significant way, in a way that has been overlooked till now, war was a very important driving force in the Industrial Revolution. In what way was it a driving force, in your view? The main mechanism that I look at in the book is military purchasing. So when different offices of the British government are trying to procure things that they need to fight the wars that Britain is continuously fighting over the course of the long 18th century. That demand from government offices, I think, stimulated a lot of the phenomena that we call the Industrial Revolution. And so I focus on the firearms industry, but there's a section in the book that tries to speculate about if we've established this in the firearms industry, that government contracts drove a lot of the change and revolutionary increases in productivity, what are some of the other areas of the economy in which we can see similar a similar effect from government purchasing? Woolen textiles, copper industry, even agriculture. You can think of many places where we might look again and see that some of the revolutionary change happening was actually being driven by government contracts. For a layman such as myself, a non-historian, one of the really interesting points, and you've just touched on it now, is the fact that Britain was almost constantly at war during this period. To what extent was Britain a war economy? I think it's hard to put a figure on it. I think more important to me is the transformative effect of war where you see a lot of change or a lot of effort to adapt 
existing techniques of production or existing ways of organization in an industry. The pressure to do that is coming from the sudden bulk demand from government offices at a time of war. Because if you think about it, there isn't much else that could force change or force adaptation to an extent that would have a revolutionary impact, that would utterly change how things were produced and how labor was organized. Could you give us some examples of that bulk demand? At the start of this time period, so in the 1690s, when Britain was at war, so the Nine Years' War, for instance, the Office of Ordnance, which was the office in charge of procuring small arms, needed tens of thousands of guns at a time. But by the end of the century, during the Napoleonic Wars, their needs were in the millions. So how do we get from a gun industry that could make tens of thousands of guns to an industry that could make millions without the addition of significant amounts of machinery? What's making that artisanal industry able to suddenly, not suddenly, but eventually produce at such a massive scale, a much greater order of magnitude than at the start of the century? And I think what you see happening is that the Office of Ordnance is intervening in the gun industry in many ways in order to enhance its productivity and to ensure that it can produce at that kind of mass level. So when there's some kind of bottleneck in production, like during the American Revolutionary War, they were not be able to procure guns as quickly as they needed. And so representatives of that office come to Birmingham, they look around, they're talking to the gun makers, they're trying to figure out what the problem is. And they find out that it's in lock making, the making of gun locks, which is the most sophisticated piece of machinery in the gun. And so then the Office of Ordnance tries to do different things in order to get rid of that bottleneck. So they'll play with the price that's given per lock to the lock makers. Or at a later point, they even create a fund to help train more lock makers so that there's more of an incentive for people to become lock makers. At one point, they simplify the design of the lock so that it's more easily made by less skilled lock makers. So they're trying all kinds of different things different mechanisms at their disposal to ensure that this industry can produce at the level that the state needs. If it hadn't been for the urgent need of the security of the realm, there wouldn't be as much of an incentive to play with industrial organization or design and all these mechanisms so much. So in this, what one could call, I guess, a century of war economy in Britain, how important was Birmingham? I think that to the extent that war drove the Industrial Revolution, that's a West Midlands story. The cotton textile story of Lancashire is still there and is perhaps less driven by war, although some of the big innovations in machinery and things were coming out of Birmingham from people who were involved in activities like gun making. But I do think that military industrial story is a Midlands story more than perhaps for other regions. And surprisingly, at the... Heart of that story are the Quakers. Why? Quaker networks are important in a lot of industrial activity in that period. Not all of them were directly implicated in war. The family at the heart of my book, the Galtons, were Quakers and gun manufacturers. But I haven't actually come across other gun manufacturers who were Quakers. So they sort of stand out that way. 
That said, one thing Galton objected to when other Quakers in Birmingham pointed fingers at him, he said, well, you may not be selling guns, but you are supplying me the iron that I'm using for my guns, or you're shipping my guns, or you're providing the insurance, or you're providing the finances. So in other ways, yes, many Quakers could be said to have been involved in this war economy, but Galton was perhaps very directly and centrally involved because he was a contractor for guns. And within the gun trade, just how big were the Galtons? The Galtons owned the single largest firm in Birmingham at the time. So if you look at the records of the Office of Ordnance, their minute books where they're putting out contracts, at a certain point by the second half of the 18th century, they're often referring to the gun contractors in Birmingham as Galton and the other contractors. So he's definitely the prominent one who stands in for the whole group of about eight or so major contractors in Birmingham. And did he make a lot of money? Did he make an industrial fortune out of this? He did, especially during the last wars of the century, the Napoleonic Wars. That's when the family's profits from gun making just skyrocketed. And it was pretty much all for military purposes, because by that point, the Office of Ordnance basically created a monopoly of purchasing guns in Birmingham, sort of taking over the whole city for that purpose. The Galton family gets into banking right at that time as well. In the middle of those wars, in 1804, they open a bank. And so their profits go into that. And they partner with Joseph Gibbons, who's another Quaker, who doesn't seem to have had any qualms about partnering with them in this banking business. How did the Quaker community respond? Because it seems to me they were very quiescent for a long, long time. Yes, so the Galton family had been involved in this gun manufacturing business for about 90 years. I mean, it was the farmers before the Galtons, but that same family had been in this business as Quakers, and it had not posed any kind of problem. It was not a scandal in any way. I think there are a couple of reasons why Quakers did not object to what Galton was doing until the 1790s. One was that manufacturing guns for war was just one of the many things that the Galtons were doing as metallurgists, right? They had a nail manufactory, they were producing iron, they made toys, which Birmingham is famous for, swords, all kinds of other metal goods. And when they were making guns, they were not only selling them to the government. They were also selling them to the big commercial companies of that day, the Hudson's Bay Company, the East India Company. And so one could diminish the importance of the government military contracting work within that portfolio of activities. Another big reason was simply that the understanding of guns shifted in the 1790s. And I don't think even if the Galtons had been known primarily as just out-and-out gun makers, and let's say they had made guns only for the government, I'm not sure that would have been a problem uh, for Quakers until the 1790s, because guns were not used in crimes of passion or unruly ways. They were used in conflicts over property. They were used in conquest abroad. They were understood as civilizing when compared to other weapons that one might use, like a blunt instrument or a stick or an axe or something like that, because it seemed more polite to aim at someone from a distance and to not really know what would happen once you shot at them. And so there's a sort of impersonal quality to guns and the violence that they did. And that started to shift in the 1790s against the backdrop of these really long, massive wars against France, 
which lasts for a couple of decades, and you suddenly see people using guns in really different ways, even in civilian life in Britain. For the first time, you see people using guns in sort of acts of casual violence that have nothing to do with property, that have nothing to do with civility. You can't defend them as civilizing uses of guns. It's just like a guy walking down the street and shooting at people for no reason. So there were actual instances of There were of instances that, of that, that that get reported in, in newspapers and reports of untimely death that are not there for the preceding decades. And also the association of guns with the slave trade which Quakers are obviously working to abolish, that gave them a sort of more negative reputation as well because guns were used to trade for slaves on the west coast of Africa and they were also used in the running of plantations. So I think all those things came together in this one moment in the 1790s. The Quakers are more concerned about scandal and guns suddenly look much more scandalous and so Galton needs to defend himself now for the first time. So how did the Society of Friends, the Quakers in Birmingham, actually express that change in relation to both guns and their attitude to the Galton Empire? The London Yearly Meeting sends out queries periodically, checking in on regional branches to see the monthly meetings around the country uh, and asking if all friends are behaving in line with principle. And that London Yearly Meeting starts in 1790 to express concern that apparently some among us are involved in the manufacture of arms for purposes of war. And it sends out a circular to all the monthly meetings saying we need to be sure that this doesn't continue. But it takes five years for the Birmingham monthly meeting to take that advice seriously. And I think that says something maybe about Galton's standing and influence within that local Quaker community. But then in 1795, there are minutes, you know, in the records of the monthly meeting of the worship in Birmingham, where it's clear that this has been mentioned. And then there are records of visits by a group of friends to go and speak with Galton and talk to him about how he needs to disengage from his gun business or else he would have to be disowned from the Society of Friends. Those visits go on for a few months and the elder Samuel Galton passes off his rights in the business to his son. So he's sort of out of the dilemma from that point. And now they just need to redeem the son, Samuel Galton II. And he decides instead to write this defense and he prints it, and he circulates it. He made two main arguments. One was that, okay, I make guns, but guns are civilizing and not necessarily weapons of war, which maybe would have been a persuasive argument to make 10 years before, but by the 1790s, I think the view of guns had shifted too much for that to persuade. And the second point was, what else can I do that would not in some way also contribute to war? Because anything I do in this industrial economy around me is going to, directly or indirectly, wind up supporting our government's war efforts. What was the response of the Quaker community and the Quaker leaders to this defence? At a formal level, he was disowned. But within the Birmingham community, there's evidence that that disownment was purely at a formal level because he did... As he had promised, he would. He defiantly continued to attend the worship, and no one stopped him. He continued to donate to Quaker charitable causes in town, like the Ackworth School, and his donations were accepted. 
He partnered with Joseph Gibbons, who was one of the friends who had been appointed to visit him in 1795 to get him to leave the gun business. So clearly Gibbons didn't have a problem with working with him or partnering with someone whose capital came from the gun industry. So I feel like there was some kind of tacit agreement within the Birmingham Friends community to sort of go on as usual, despite the fact of the formal disownment. The disownment of Galton really ends up having no effect whatsoever, then, no impact. Well, one way it may have had an impact is that I think he may have become even more eager to be philanthropic, to prove his goodness. That was maybe one effect. There was already a long record of the family being involved in various philanthropic activities, but I feel like it intensified in the late 1790s, early 1800s, and I wonder if that was because he's trying to prove something. But in terms of his relations with other friends and with the Birmingham meeting, I don't see a huge change. He does secure burial grounds for himself and his wife to be buried there as his father had been. That was a concern for him. And with the end of the Napoleonic Wars, which I guess marked the end of this extended period of war and its impact on the British economy, how did the arms trade and the arms industry change? The Galtons wind up their gun business in 1815 because suddenly the war demand stops. So for them, it's over. And they're so wealthy at that point. They have the bank, which lasts for another 20 years or so. But later, the next generation, Francis Galton, is sort of a gentlemanly scholar pursuing his theories of eugenics. He's not an industrialist at all. Now, looking at the research that you've conducted and this really fascinating book, as I said at the beginning... How have your preconceptions, your view of the Industrial Revolution in Britain changed? I always wondered how the Industrial Revolution was tied to the fact that colonial conquest was going on at the same time. And I think I feel much more satisfied in understanding that connection now, that Britain was fighting these wars. Many of them were wars that led to imperial expansion And the demand for guns for the sake of conquest and for the trade that both led to conquest and that resulted from conquest, that helped drive this industrial transformation in Britain. That made a lot more sense. The second thing that shifted for me was that the greatness of figures like Matthew Bolton and James Watt, which we've been taught from school and the wonder of some of the great inventions of the time, like the steam engine, those remain intact for me. But what's different is that I now know and understand that Bolton and Watt were also government contractors and that the steam engine was partly made possible by certain innovations in cannon manufacturing that were sponsored by the government first. And so all of that has a context of war that helps it make a lot more sense. And that also helps explain why aren't there Boltons and Watts all over the world? Surely the potential for entrepreneurial genius exists all over the world. So what was different about Britain in that period? And I think it was the fact that wars were being pursued so aggressively for so much of the time in that period. And so the third thing that I think makes a lot more sense to me after writing this book is why the Industrial Revolution happens in Britain and not anywhere else. Because besides Galton, there are other people who are noticing that the wars were producing this 
kind of industrial takeoff. And some of the people who were aware of it were British officials in colonies like Bengal, and even in the American colonies, where they're very nervous about industrial takeoff in those colonies that might threaten the interests of Britain. And so they're working very hard to smother arms-making capacity in Bengal to ensure that Bengal does not have an industrial takeoff. And so the way those two phenomena are related, what's called the great divergence between East and West, I think makes a bit more sense once we put in that context of war and understand it as a context in which the Industrial Revolution took place. And do you see any resonances with the world today? Oh, for sure. <laughs> Where do I begin? One thing is, I think, if we realize that from the very beginning, government has had a role in industrialism, and there wasn't this glorious first invention of industrialism in which the government was hands-off and entrepreneurship was allowed to flourish unfettered. If we know that, then we will be able to more easily contemplate government having some kind of constructive role in economic development or industrialism or whatever you want to call it in our own time. It doesn't have to be related to war. It could be related to something more peaceable. But the idea of government being involved in the economy seems less strange if we know that it has been like that since the start of industrialism. In the United States, there's just a lot of resonance of this story in our debates about gun control, which I know is more of a settled question <laughs> in the UK, but it's an ongoing kind of crisis in the United States. You know, and just understanding the 18th century is the period in which the Second Amendment was written and what were guns in that time, what function did they serve, what was the use of arms or firearms that its authors had in mind. That makes a lot more sense, having written this book. I think also the way Galton sort of, whether we call it rationalization or how he justified his participation in a war economy and the way that the Society of Friends refused to buy it and said, no, no, you as an arms maker are particularly culpable. The rest of us are not. I think that's an important moment in sort of the development of our coping mechanisms so that we can all continue to participate in economies that often are still in some way military industrial. And we have mind tricks that we can play to say, no, I just work at a university that gets a lot of Defense Department funding, I'm not as bad as the guy in the engineering department who's actually developing an artificial intelligence weapon. Or think of any example. But I do think that there are ways in which we're constantly faced with that ethical dilemma of how much are we involved in war through our economic activities, whether as consumers or producers. And you see echoes of that, for instance, today in Google. There's a huge conversation among employees there about whether or not Google should be accepting Defense Department contracts for artificial intelligence. And it involves DeepMind, which is a British company based in London. That's one of the most important artificial intelligence companies in the world, which Google acquired under the stipulation that DeepMind's technology would never be used for military purposes. So now what? Can Google take on those Pentagon contracts or does the obligation to deep mind matter more? So they're grappling with that right now. I don't think Amazon and Microsoft, which also have defense contracts, are grappling with it 
so openly. I think Google is because they have that slogan of don't be evil, which is, you know, maybe some kind of echo of what Quakers were trying to say in their time, not that Google are Quakers, but they've taken on this burden of trying to be good. And I think that's why they're struggling with this question. Priya, your book is an absolute revelation on many, many levels. And I'm sure that it is going to open up a lot of discussion about the Industrial Revolution in Birmingham and the world we live in today. Thank you very, very much indeed for your time. Thank you so much for this interview. Priya Satya is Professor of British History at Stanford University, USA. Her book, Empire of Guns, The Violent Making of the Industrial Revolution, is published in the UK by Gerald Duckworth and in the USA by Penguin Random House. You can find out much more about the history and heritage of the West Midlands in our films, podcasts and books at www.historywm.com, where you can also register for the newsletter. And visit our unique resource, Revolutionary Players, for open access to digitised books, maps, images and much more about the Industrial Enlightenment in the region. Simply go to www.revolutionaryplayers.org.uk Revolutionary Players